0: We do welcome you here within the church as well as those who are watching our live stream. Um, Some of you know that we are in a series right now called 10 Words of Love, which is another way of saying the 10 Commandments. Um, Often they get only described as prohibitions, things we must not do. We can see the wagging finger, which as human beings, you know, as soon as you see this and you shouldn't do it, what do you do? You wanna do it. So you you can get in this prohibition stance But then you can also get into a dismissive stance where, well, the Ten Commandments were once upon a time. They don't really apply to me. And I think both of those are dangers. And so as I talk to you today, I'm hoping to steer a middle road. On the one hand, I want to make it very clear. And if you saw the title, mine is called Number Seven. Now, let me just, I have to say one thing about number seven. So that is so gamey, that means adultery. We are going to talk about adultery today, and actually, seriously, for families who have young children, you will hear the word sex. I don't want you to worry, but that is kind of what adultery is about. Um, So if you need to take a break or go out into the narthex or whatever, please do so. But if you're just uncomfortable because you don't want to hear about it, you should stay um, because this will be helpful for you. But my hope today is to steer that road of saying, on the one hand, I want to be crystal clear. Adultery is wrong. And it's not just sinful. It's not just morally wrong. It's destructive. And I can tell you, as I stand before you today, I was talking to Mary, and I said, I had such a hard time preparing for this sermon this week. And it's not because there wasn't enough information. There was plenty. And then I realized, as I was writing it, this has impacted my life. When I was a teenager in high school, adultery broke my home. Now, my parents did not get divorced. They remained together. But I realize it in my body, in my heart, that this is not a theoretical concept. This is not just one of the Ten Commandments to check. This is one where The sin of adultery affects not only the one committing it and the partner, but also all the concentric circles that go out from there. The children, the community, the church, and so on. And so, on the one hand, I want to take that seriously. I don't want to be jokey about that. That matters. But on the other hand, we can get kind of rigid and fearful and not be able, in a sense, to lean into God's grace. And this is a word for those of you who have been impacted by adultery, either by committing it or impacted by it. There is plenty of wideness in God's mercy. You know that hymn? I'm going to end with that at the end. There is wideness in God's mercy. And there's a sense that no matter what your path has been, no no matter what your road has been, there's healing and there's abundance and there's joy. And so I want to hold that out for us, right? Both of those together. So just to remind those of you who may have be joining us for the first time um, welcome again online Um, those of you who may not have been to a contemporary service yet in this series I just want to paint a little picture for you about what's happening so the 10 commandments are so important in Hebrew scripture we hear them twice. We hear them once in Exodus, right after the people have fled Egypt. They're at Mount Horeb. There's a fire on the mountain. Moses goes up the mountain to encounter God. And then the finger of God writes the Ten Commandments. And and we know them well no other gods, no idols, no taking God's name in vain. Keep the Sabbath holy. Honor your father and mother. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness against your neighbor and don't covet. So the people received these commandments from Moses and from God. And then in Deuteronomy, which you may or may not know, Deuteronomy is really a masterful book that was created by biblical editors after the exile. So it was actually quite long after the actual fact, but the editors were looking back through Israelite history to try to make sense of what Moses had done and the track that the people should be on, particularly in exile. What is the path that they should take to remain close to God? And so in Deuteronomy, it's right as the people are in the valley getting ready to enter the promised land, right? They're on the cusp, all this journeying, all this wandering. And Moses reminds them of the Ten Commandments that they heard at Horeb. So if you think of Moses' ministry, the Ten Commandments began it and ended it. And then, as we know, he did not enter the Promised Land. So that's the kind of central place that it has in Hebrew Scripture. So, the first four deal with relationship with God. The last six deal with relationship with neighbor. And as I was looking at these and as I was thinking and reading about this, one of the things I didn't realize is do you know what runs through every commandment in one way or another? Is stealing. Every one has to do with taking something that doesn't belong to you. So, it's either taking the honor that belongs to God or it's taking the honor that belongs to parents. Or it's taking the um, fidelity that is owed to one's spouse. Or taking someone's good name. In the Ten Commandments, every single one, there's an element of stealing. And I think that kind of goes, you know, to the the basic deadly sins of humanity. And one of them is greed. There's a sense of taking to ourselves what doesn't belong to us. And adultery falls into that category. So, thou shalt not commit adultery. That is number seven for those who hadn't looked up ahead of time. So we have to ask ourselves, and I, I kind of can't believe this is true, but in this day and age, adultery almost is an old-fashioned word, and I think we have to ask ourselves, what does that mean? So for those of you who are, did not grow up in the church, or you kind of know vaguely it has something to do with sex, but you're not sure what it is, there actually is a legal definition, and it's important. So in our day and time, it is when a married person has sexual intercourse with another person who is not his or her spouse. That's the modern day, right? Very egalitarian, very mutual. A man can commit adultery, a woman can commit adultery, um, either way. But in the biblical times, this is what the definition meant. And at the time of the commandments, sexual relations between a man and a betrothed or married woman who is not his wife. Now, this is where we gotta be honest about the context and the time and the historicity of it all. In the time of Moses, women were property and men owned the women. So in a sense, the sin of adultery, yes, there's a relational aspect. There's a sense that it's harmful to the relationship, but more importantly, one man is stealing what belongs to another man. And that's what gives it legal standing. So that's one important and somewhat awful thing to acknowledge. And it goes even deeper than that because not only is it about stealing, but it's about clouding the bloodline. So, we, you know, the man would trace his heritage down through the, the father's. And so if you have adultery, if you have another sexual partner, suddenly that bloodline is clouded. That's a problem. And also matters of inheritance. Um, there are certain people that you would give your belongings to, and if there are other people involved, it complicates the inheritance pattern. So as you can see, there's some ancient legal issues involved with adultery, not just the harm done one person to another. So it was considered so serious in Uh, the time of ancient Israel that you probably know what the uh, punishment for adultery was. Now you couldn't just point at somebody and said they committed adultery. There were safeguards for the victim. It had to be witnessed by two people. Um, The the law is very clear about what you needed to be able to have a finding of adultery against somebody. But the punishment was stoning, stoning to death. That's how important it was. And that's how much it went to the fabric of who Israel was. And I want to look at that a little bit. What is, what is it? Why is this action, like murder and like others, why is it so, um, such a priority? Here's part of what's happening with Israel. Israel was called out from among the people, from the foreigners, as it were, and called to be a holy people separate under God. And what that meant is they had to act different. They had to pray differently. They had to see God as one God, not many gods. And so they were called out for a unique purpose. And as a result, so as not to assimilate, so as not just to blend in with those around them, they had to maintain very strict purity laws, things that held them out as holy, held them out as separate. Because I think the biggest fear of the of the community is that they, they in a sense, would just assimilate into pagan culture, they would follow pagan ways, and they would lose that sense of holiness unto God. So when you understand that, when you really get what it means to be called apart, to be um, beloved of God in a unique way, it then means that there's certain behaviors and attitudes that follow out of that. And one of them was, for example, um, to not commit adultery. So if you look through the Old Testament, I won't go through it, but even before the Ten Commandments, even in pre-literary Genesis, The patriarchs are struggling with adultery. There's a point where Abraham tries to pass off his wife Sarah as his sister. The king takes her into his kingdom. Um, and it's only discovered later that she's actually Abraham's wife. And the king gets mad at him. Why do you do this to me? Why do you put me in harm's way? Um, you know, you know that I should not have your wife in my, in my kingdom. And Isaac, who is Abraham's son, repeats the sin of the father, does the exact same thing with Rebekah. And in fact, with Abimelech again. And Abimelech confronts him and says, why do you bring this danger upon my house? So even before the Ten Commandments, there's a struggling, a sense that um, there is danger in violating the sacred covenant of marriage. The story we know so well, David and Bathsheba. David saw Bathsheba from his rooftop. Uriah was not there. He was at battle. And so David hatched a plan where he would have an adulterous relationship with Bathsheba and even ended up having her husband killed so he could do that. And we know that David's whole rule, his whole ministry, if you will, after that, was one of asking for forgiveness, a brokenness that he had rendered the garment of kingship. And he understood that. And so even though he was a mighty warrior and a beautiful singer, part of what defined him was this sense of guilt and this sense of shame for what he had done. And he needed to come to God again and again to be made whole. And we hear about the Davidic covenant. This is the thing about God. God made a special covenant with David, fully mindful of who he was, fully mindful of the sins he had committed. And God basically said to David, I will prosper you to the nth generation Because you are beloved of me. And so for those who may be struggling with this issue, who may have um, committed adultery, who may have ambivalence about that, I want you to hold in your mind David, who was well aware of his crime and whom God welcomed in and embraced and said, you are my beloved, you are my own. Proverbs has some really interesting um, wisdom about adultery. Won't get into it, but this quote uh, is interesting. And I want you to note how it's the dangerous feminine that the men have to watch out for. Remember, this is dated. So it's almost like the wiles of the women. Watch out. The wayward wife with her seductive words, her house leads down to death. None who go to her return or attain the paths of life. Notice this emphasis, this unweighted um, emphasis on the woman. It could just as easily be said of men. So Paul in the New Testament also addresses adultery, um, also takes it seriously. And remember, so I've defined adultery... But there are other sexual sins that are also mentioned in the Bible. We're not going to get into those. We're really focusing just on adultery. Um, and Paul writes about that in his letters to the churches because there's way that, ways that unholy sexuality is actually infecting the community. It's, it's diverting it from its purpose. And so Paul in his letters, they're very intimate. And he's not afraid to say, you know, you're doing this, or in this case, you're doing this, and I'm going to call you to righteousness. I'm going to call you to the salvation of Jesus Christ. Because again, just like Israel, as the church as the body of Christ you have a purpose in the world and so how you conduct yourself and how you live sheds light on who the Christ is and that gets awesome I mean that, that's what I said before you can kind of it can get weighty because you realize that your actions are not just your own it's not just your family but it's also your faith community do your actions do your behaviors point to the Christ and I would suggest that That whatever sin we are guilty of and we all know places where we fall that God's grace comes through those broken places and God reveals the saving nature of Jesus Christ not in spite of our sin but through it and so that's why I'm so glad you're here I'm so glad that you're not leaving the room because there's a sense that this is a hospital for sinners we are being made whole we don't have to have it all figured out we don't have to be perfect That God moves in and through us through our broken places to reveal the healing that God can do. The last Bible story I want to mention, and we're well familiar with it, is Jesus and the woman caught in adultery. Um, I think most of you know it, but I am just going to repeat it briefly because it's remarkable. So Jesus is sitting there and the Jewish elders bring in a woman that they say has been caught in the act of adultery. I mean, it's literally dragging her right in front of Jesus and they're testing him to see what he will do. And this is interesting. First, he's quiet and he takes his finger and he writes on the ground. We don't know what he's writing. We don't know what law he's reflecting on, but he quietly writes on the ground and they're waiting to see if he will condemn her. And then he says to the people gathered, he says, those who are without sin, throw the first stone. And then he goes back to writing again with his finger. And one by one, the men put their rocks down because they were going to stone her. And they walk away until it's just the woman caught in adultery and Jesus. And what is his word to her? It's beautiful. He says to her, woman, who is here to accuse you? Is anyone here? And she looks around and she says, no one. And Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Do you see that amazing mercy and yet that fierce righteousness that's held together? That's the God we're talking about. Neither do I condemn you. Forgiven, free, set free. Go and sin no more. Sometimes we want to have one without the other, but it's actually both held together. So, moving to our present time now, and uh, our context, it's almost a running joke in sitcoms and on media about adultery. It's not taken very seriously, and yet I think some of you know the impact. Some of you have experienced it either in your marriage or as a child. You know what it can do and how it feels. Let me be clear about what the Episcopal Church says. The Episcopal Church says that marriage is sacred. It's special, it's set apart, and it's meant for the union of two people, um, for their mutual joy, for their uh, life in Christ, and for the procreation of children, if it is God's will, if it's applicable. So marriage is set apart as a sacrament in our context. Um, It is, like we said with Israel, it's set apart and it's holy, it matters. And so how we live into that marriage relationship matters. What are the stats on adultery? It's not uncommon, but it's also maybe not as common as we're led to believe. There's mixed numbers, but it's somewhere between 50 to 60 percent, 15 to 60 percent, depending on whether you're a man or a woman. Men do report more infidelity than women. And as I've said before, it's devastating not only for the two people involved, but also for the families and their communities. But prohibition alone is not going to cut it. That's like saying, don't do drugs. There are a lot of factors that lead to adultery, that lead to infidelity. And being a therapist before I became a priest, I want to talk a little bit about some of what can drive unfaithful behavior. And it's nuanced. And one size doesn't fit all. One or both parties feel stagnant in the relationship. There's a sense That there's a fear of going to that next level with the partner. It might be fear of conflict. It might be fear of creativity and play. Whatever it is, there's something in the relationship that is stuck. And rather than, in a sense, breaking through, it's easier to go outside of the relationship. It's easier to go search elsewhere for that sense of play, that sense of freedom, that sense of intimacy. And yet God calls us into ourselves and into our relationships that we have to find that depth that is God. Um, So in a sense, don't cop out. Don't get lazy. Do the work in your own context, which is possible if you come to know yourself and if you come to know your partner. Two, sometimes there's emotional or physical abuse. And I want to be clear, in the Episcopal Church, if you're in a situation where you are experiencing emotional or physical abuse, there is no expectation that you stay in that context and be harmed. It's not good for you. It's not good for your children. And so there are grounds for divorce, and that that one is pretty significant. I'm not saying it can't be healed, um, but if there's abuse involved, be very careful. Uh, It may be necessary for that relationship to die so that something new can be born. Sometimes it's unhealthy attitudes about sex. You were reared in a certain way. You were brought up in a certain way, um, either overly promiscuous or very shut down around it. And so even the whole concept of sexuality, um, some of you sitting here this morning might just be so uncomfortable that we're even naming it because there's a sense that, you know, you don't talk about that in good company and you certainly don't talk about it in church. We do. It's St. Michael. It's okay. We talk about these things. Um, And so some of those unhealthy attitudes that we got from our parents um, in childhood can be a a factor. Sometimes there's addiction. Um, And as you know, in this day and age, pornography is rampant, um, viewed by both, both men and women. And there are many, many people who, by their own report, are addicted to pornography. And addiction to pornography is a precursor to unfaithfulness and adultery and infidelity. It doesn't always happen. Um, but it in a sense, it is a factor in the likelihood of adultery occurring. So sometimes that's a warning. That's a flag. Um, the the addictive need to look at adultery is a sign that you need help, that you need to talk with somebody. And it might be a religious counselor. It might be a therapist. Um, but when it has taken hold of you, um, when it drives, just like alcohol or drugs, when it drives everything, you know, you just can't wait for that, uh, moment to be able to be in front of the computer. That's a sign that you probably have a problem with pornography and you're going to need help. And then sometimes there's just a longing for something deeper, something better, um, something of God. And again, the question is, will you allow yourself to find that within your own depths and within the depth of your relationship? You know, this may be obvious, but I want to say it because we're Episcopalians. Uh, the church provides some help for those in this kind of situation. One is gathering together in community and hearing the word of God can break up some of those unhealthy patterns. So if you're tuning in or if you're here, you're already doing that work of letting God's grace really break the soil and help you heal. That's critical. But also, we have what's called the rite of reconciliation. Um, in the Catholic Church, it's called confession. Some people don't realize that Episcopalians have this, we do. Um, you can approach a priest, anyone on staff or a priest in another church, if you want greater anonymity, and that priest will walk you through the rite of reconciliation. Um, and it's a beautiful and brief and deep service, and it's a sacrament. You know, we have Eucharist, we have baptism, right? You know the sacraments. Well, the rite of reconciliation is one of those. And I think that's a service not often enough taken advantage of in our context, where you can go to a trusted minister and hear not only the naming of the sin, but also the assurance of forgiveness, that God, just like Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. That's ultimately what we need to hear and then go and sin no more. So the rite of reconciliation is also available. And then, of course, sustained work with a counselor. Again, having done this work, my wife is also a psychotherapist. It is amazing the goodness that can come from sustained work with a counselor if both parties are willing to do the work. Um, I heard one person who went through this process. It was, you know, they were devastated. They were sure they were going to get a divorce. They decided to find a counselor, not just any counselor, but a counselor who has experience in this area and believes in the sanctity of marriage and wants to help people heal when possible, even though it isn't always possible, but sometimes it is. And this one woman said, I needed to divorce my old marriage so that I could be remarried to a new marriage. And there was a sense it's the same person, it's the same human being, but I needed to divorce something that was unhealthy, unholy, and I need to let a new marriage be born. Um, So I hold that out to you. Uh, Yes, there's a turning away, there's a separating, but it may not have to be from the person. It may be from a way of life or patterns that are not life-giving. To wrap it all up, God loves us. God calls us into covenant faithfulness. If we see one thing in the Bible, it's that God comes to his people again and again and again and invites them to return. There are consequences for bad behavior. There's consequences for breaking the Ten Commandments, not because you'll be struck by lightning, but because your life will begin to manifest imbalance. And God continually calls us to return. In closing, I would like to share the words of this hymn with you, and I'm going to actually do four verses um, because each verse is almost better than the next. So if you would, take a breath, if you've been kind of as nervous as I am, and hear these words from There's a Wideness in God's Mercy. There's a Wideness in God's Mercy, like the wideness of the sea. There's a kindness in God's justice, which is more than liberty, There's welcome for the sinner and more graces for the good. There's mercy with the Savior. There's healing in his blood. But we make God's love too narrow by false limits of our own, and we magnify its strictness with a zeal God will not own. For the love of God is broader than the measures of the mind, and the heart of the eternal is most wonderfully kind. Amen.